and we will continue uh, in looking at uh, the least Mother's Day sermon in the world. So I apologize. It's just that's just how it came out. Uh, all right, so we're going to start with reading of Scripture, just a little bit of context here, and then we'll do our, our normal intro, just so we know where we're at. So uh, we're going to start by looking at 2 Kings chapter 3. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother. For he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. All right, so today we're seeing uh, Elisha's first interaction with the new king, the new king of Israel, Ahab and Jezebel. Now they'd established this idolatry, this worship of Baal, and they were struck down. After that, uh, the first son, Ahaziah, he was also struck down for his idolatry and for his sin. And now we have the next son in that same line, Je- Jehoram. All right, so uh, what are we getting when we get Jehoram on the scene? So we have someone who is not as evil as his father and his mother. He has not run after foreign gods and idols, but what has he done? He's continued in the sins of Jeroboam. Now, what did Jeroboam do? Uh, You guys already know, but I'll tell you. Uh, All right, Uh, he established in Bethel and in Dan, not Jerusalem, where he was supposed to, uh, he made these, these temples to worship God, but using golden calves. So he established two golden calves in two pagan temples to the Lord, and therefore was not really worshiping Yahweh. He was worshiping this pale imitation. He was worshiping a way that God had not sanctioned and as, you sum, as we look at this uh, summary of who Jehoram is, he is a half-hearted, half-baked disciple, follower, worshiper, and king. He is a little better, but not perfect, not ideal. I'm not that bad, guys. <laughs> Maybe I am. I just don't know. Um, all right, so he's worshiped God the wrong way. He has failed to be obedient to his word. He hasn't been consistent in following God's desires for his worship. And we wonder, okay, what happens to a half-hearted worshiper? What happens to a half-hearted king? What does his life look like in his interaction with God? But even more importantly, what does God, what does God do with a person like that? Which might be somewhat relevant because some of us are half-hearted worshipers. Most of the time, we're probably half-hearted. Or, yeah, we, we worship God, but not as we should, or not in the, the ways that he's commanded. Not with full hearts and, and utter joy. And so what happens? All right, so we're going to see uh, three things here. We're going to see a half-hearted plan to solve the, his problems. We're going to see God. God responds with a full, full-hearted, full-orbed salvation and then we have this disheartening ending. All right. This is all about the heart. The heart of worship. 
What does it look like to be half-hearted or full-hearted? How do we change when we recognize we are, we're not all in, even as we should be? So, let's pray. Oh, Father, we ask that you would um, help us by your Holy Spirit, that we would understand, that we would not hear your word, not do anything with it, but, Lord, we would change. Father, would you transform us from half-hearted disciples to full-hearted disciples because uh, we have seen your heart of love. Lord, work in us uh, that which uh, we cannot muster ourselves. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we are going to see the problem and this half-hearted king's solution. So, uh, Moab. Moab. You guys all know Moab, too, so that's good. Uh, this is a nation just to the east of Israel. I'll get a map later. You'll see it. You'll be fine. Uh, it's just the east of Israel, and it has rebelled against the nation of Israel. So, generations and generations before... King David, King David, the man after God's own heart, had conquered Moab and subjected it so that it had to pay tribute to, to Israel for, for years and years and years. But Moab has rebelled. Verse 4. Now, Mesha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool or, uh, uh, yeah, lambs, and the wool of a 100,000 rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. All right. So in the midst of his reign, uh, the king has lost this golden goose that was providing for the wealth and for the stability of his kingdom. And he is liable to become the, the one who basically lost Moab lost rule over this kingdom. And so what does he do about it? Verse 6. So King Jehoram marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all of Israel. And he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I will go. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses then he said, by which way shall we march? Jehoram answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. All right, so we have a plan. And it, it seems like a pretty good plan. All right, so if you're going to go to war, who should you take with you? Everyone. All right, so again, gathers all of Israel. all of, And, the, and then he thinks, okay, uh, how else can I get on my side? Not just Israel, I'll go to my sister nation to the south and align with the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat. The nice thing is that you got a two-in-one when you go to Judah. Because Judah had their own nation they controlled, Edom. And so that means the king of Edom is roped into all this. All right, so we have this trifecta. All right, three strands. We're going to all go and fight Moab. But not even that. Uh, we have a surprise attack. So uh, let's, let's get the map up. All right, so, uh, all right, so we're, uh, we're in Israel here, the blue. We're fighting the yellow, or sorry, sorry, purple, purple, purple. Uh, now, because that's the border there, uh, Moab would have expected an attack. And so what are we going to do? We're going to do a sneak attack. We're going to go through Judah, go through the wilderness of Edom, because we did, we did an alliance with Edom, and attack Moab from the south. All right, so we have a surprise attack 
of three armies, all of these horses, all of these troops. This is the plan. All right. Good plan? Good plan. All right. Uh, now, what, what is the problem with this plan? What's the problem is that, first, no one consulted the Lord. Actually, no consideration was given to whether uh, God would want to have anything to play in this plan, whether he would want to solve this problem or how he would want to solve it. And in the plan, he looks exactly like every other king who has ever existed. All right, how will he solve his problem? He will solve his problem with allies, as many troops as you can muster, as many horses as you can bring, a secret battle plan. And what happens? God is left completely out of the picture. And so what, what can we guarantee from this plan? Uh, God will get no consideration and no glory. He's a half-hearted king. He doesn't actually consider the Lord. It's a, he doesn't need to. He has a plan. He has a way of life. He can get things done without him. All right. So, what does this teach us? All right. We can be equally half-hearted and godless in our response to problems, in our planning, in our scheming. All right. Kids. Kids, what solutions often seem best to you? When kids are being mean, what do we do? We're just mean right back. Or maybe we just, we just run away, or maybe we, we don't. Do we think and think, like, what, what would God want me to do in this situation? What would reflect Jesus and the love that he has? Or do we think, well, every other kid would just kick him in the shin, so let's just do that. All right. And that's, that's the options that we have on the table. Like we, can, we can act like anyone else, or we can live like, like Christians and like followers of God and give grace and mercy. It's a hard decision. All right, youth, youth, as you face all of the problems that are going to come in your life, as you think about the plans for your future, does it look like a plan for your life that a non-Christian would have? Is it exactly the same? Is it the exact same solutions, money or a perfect marriage or the ideal, ideal job? And Are you basically just walking the same plan as anyone else in the world, slapping a Jesus sticker on it? All right. I did that for the longest time until someone was like, oh, you have to actually follow Jesus. And maybe he's going to lead you in a way that you, you never wanted to. That there's things that, that God calls Christians to and no one else. It's like missions and ministry, singleness, service and sacrifice. Have you considered the, the plans that God has for your life, not the plans that you have for, for your own? And for the rest of us, Right now, how are you facing the problems that you have in your life? Do they require God to act? Do they require prayer? 
Do they require the, the death and resurrection of Jesus? Or are your plans exactly like the world's? If they fail, do you just keep trying again and again and again the same, the same worldly plans? Or have you been living such a controlled life that, yeah, God never gets any glory because God never shows up because God never needed to? All right. All right. It's very easy to look like King Jehoram, a half-hearted king. We can be a half-hearted people. Now, how does God respond to all of this half-heartedness. Verse 9. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. When they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army and for the animals that followed them. All right, so we had this great plan. We were going to go up through Edom, and it's a desert, and there's no water. All right, we probably should have seen that this might happen. Uh... All right, but now, what's the, what's the reality of what might happen? They could be left half dead in the desert. Moab comes and just utterly destroys them. All right, so you have two. Two responses by two kings. First, the king of Israel, King Jehoram. The king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. The Lord has called these three kings, them, to give them into the hand of Moab. All right, is this true? Is this a true, a true summary of the facts here? All right, first, first, no, because this is an overstatement. First, has the Lord called these three kings? Now, some of you are theological sticklers, and you're like, well, uh, technically anything that happens is God's will, and he's called them. All right, no, don't do that. Who called these people? Jehoram. This was his plan. And the only reason now he, he's thinking this is God's sovereign plan is because now he can blame God for failing. Now that things have gone awry, he believes in God, but only so he can blame God and, and escape responsibility and escape the fact that he had done all this by his own scheming. And under his own power, with no consideration to the sovereignty of God before he started, only afterwards. One of the commentaries I read uh, says this, always beware of folks who cite the sovereignty of God in order to excuse or accuse, but not to worship and adore. Right? That we only be believe in the sovereignty of the Lord to excuse and accuse him, or to excuse ourselves or accuse him of wrongdoing, never to worship and adore. All right? That is, that is where his theology leads him. That in making it God's fault, he doesn't have to reckon with the fact that this was his plan. And the Lord was under no obligation to bless it. He ought to be repenting of his self-sufficiency, of his autonomy, not blaming the Lord for what has happened. Now, there's a second problem. He's assuming that he knows what the plan is, to be given into the hands of Moab. But the reality is, he has no idea. And he has never asked 
that he is projecting and assuming the motives and the character of God and assuming it is one of destruction, of judgment, and of failure. All right, what do we call this? We call this Murphy's Law Christianity. All right, Murphy's Law Christianity. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. But the Christian part of it, and it will be God's fault when it does. All right, that's often, that's often how we think. That we assume, okay, God, God is just going to wreck everything, and it will be his fault when he does. All right. First, that's an incredibly proud position to assume that you know the plans of God. But even more, it's just an incredibly faithless position to assume such motives onto God and to assume that he doesn't have some larger plan. All right, what, what are we seeing in Jehoram? This is, this is half-baked theology from a half-hearted believer. And he only gets half of his theology right. All right, there's a reason he's half-hearted. It's because he only sees half of God. All he sees is the negative part. All he sees is the destruction. He doesn't see any of his sin. And all he sees is judgment. All right. So, are you quick to doubt and despair, assume the plans of God, and assume that they are all for the worst? Are you slow to repent? Are you quick to blame him for things that you are responsible for? Or for going your own way and ending in disaster? Whose fault is that? If we never, never consulted him, never included him. Right. Now, thankfully, thankfully, we have a second, a second person here who responds differently. We're going to get uh, Jehoshaphat from the line of David, part of this line of the Messianic lineage, and this great man of faith, actually, uh, a full-hearted faith. Verse 11. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may, we may inquire of the Lord? Well, this is good. Let's actually ask him. Maybe we don't know what he's going to do. Or maybe we could find someone who can, who can intercede for us, someone who can help us. All right, Jehoshaphat, he is not perfect. But he's in general faithful. All right, he should have, he should have been asking these questions a long time ago before he aligned himself with a half-hearted king. Uh, but he's solving the problem. He's seeking the Lord now. Right? Better late than never. And he's humble. Humble enough to recognize that maybe I don't know what God is doing. And we shouldn't assume judgment before we've even asked him. We need to allow God to speak. Let's continue. Then one of the kings of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shephat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. All right, we're in the middle of the Edom desert, and who happens to be there but Elisha? All right, why? Is it just good luck? Or, or our plan was great after all. Good fortune. 
karma? No, this, this is the sovereignty of the Lord. This is God's providential care. This is love and, and meeting halfway and meeting, meeting more than halfway, full way. Um, all right. The sovereignty of God doesn't come up here. No one celebrates, but there it is. All right. So, uh, we have these two options. We can either seek the word of the Lord in the midst of our trouble to change plans or, or hear him out, or we can just assume the worst without real faith. All right. Now, uh, you are not going to have a prophet to go find. Please don't go looking for a prophet. Uh, there's easier ways to find the word of the Lord. Uh, but we're going to learn about what, what's, what the, what's the problem. We need, we need another couple steps here. So uh, let's keep going. Verse 13. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. Oh, man. Elisha is not impressed by the king of Israel. But the king of Israel said to him, No, it is I, uh, it is the Lord who called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. All right, this is bad too. All right, he, he doubles down with the same terrible theology before the prophet. Essentially, just lying straight up to him, the one who is the prophet, who knows these things. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives, for whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you, but now bring me a musician. Now notice the problem here. What is the standing of a half-hearted, half-worshipping, half-faithful king? He has absolutely no standing before the man of God. He has no access to the word. He is completely cast out. All of his bad theology doesn't gain him access to the God of the universe. And so, but what does his connection with someone who does have faith, someone who is not half-hearted, and someone who actually stands in the line of the Davidic kingship, who points all the way down to the anointed Messiah, all right, Jehoshaphat is, is this Christ picture in the story. That no, Jehoram, with his faith and with his performance, cannot stand and, and hear the word of the Lord, cannot receive the blessings of God, but he's aligned himself with someone who can. And for his sake, for the vicarious righteousness, the vicarious holiness, the vicarious true heart of Jehoshaphat, he gets, he gets a, an audience with God. He gets to hear the word. All right. All right. We are in that exact same situation as we stand before God. That you can go. You can go and, and, 
and stand before the word of the Lord with your half-heartedness and with your, your shoddy obedience. And you know what the word of the Lord will say to you? You are condemned. You are judged. You are under the wrath of God. That this half-hearted thing isn't enough. That just merely claiming it and then not having true obedience or true worship, not really regarding the Lord, it's not, it's not acceptable. It doesn't gain you any standing with the Lord. And the reality is that that is all of us. We all have not done enough. We are at best half-hearted. But there is one who is full-hearted, fully obedient, fully faithful, the King Jesus Christ. And he, if we are united to him by faith, then we stand in him. We stand in him and everything changes as we hear the word of the Lord. And so what do we see? God responds in just like overwhelming, full-hearted, remarkable blessing to Jehoram. When the musicians played, the hand of the Lord came upon him, and he said, Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink you, your livestock, and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand, and you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city. You shall fell every good tree and stop up all the springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. All right. They got God wrong, didn't they? They were wondering, well, what is God doing? What's his plan? And th this is his plan. They're going to get miraculous water from an unknown source, no rain, no wind. And not only that, that's just that small hat. Like, yeah, I can take care of people in the desert. I've been doing that for a really long time. All right? That's like his specialty at this point. All right. And I think, okay, that's not enough because, like, that's not what you need to see. How about I, I change the plan completely and I will give you the greatest, most substantial, overwhelming victory that I can possibly imagine. You're going to defeat every tree and every field and every spring. Every city is going to be demolished. You're just going to have, like, utter decimate your enemy. That's what I'm going to give you. To a half-hearted king who has failed to worship well, but who's aligned himself with one faithful man. Curses and judgment and wrath have been replaced by just utter grace and blessing and victory. Overwhelming. In a way that you could never have imagined. Far more abundant than the plans. Far more abundant than what he could control. And who would get all the glory? God would. That is how God addresses this half-hearted king. And that's what happens when we 
through Christ, we go to the Word of God. This thing that should condemn us, now who are we? We are the righteous ones. We are the holy ones. The truly faithful, because we stand in Christ, who is all those things. And now we are overwhelmed with like the, the flood of blessings and promises and grace. That he'd say, like, I, you need the Holy Spirit's power to understand the depth and breadth and width and height of God's love for you. That it's unfathomable. That you've been completely justified so that you don't have any guilt for any of your sin. It's never gonna, you're never going to have to pay for it. Because Christ already did. And I'm going to change you from the inside out and, and change your very heart to the core by my power. I'm going to call you as children to receive an inheritance of heaven that Christ earned for himself. I'm going to work all things for your good and all things are going to be changing for for your glory and for mine. Like that's how God addresses half-hearted people who come through Christ. All right. Do you look for that God? Do you know him? Do you believe that if you ask God, you will find that kind of God? help you in the midst of your troubles, to, to encourage you, to walk with you. Spiritual blessings that are found in Christ that we, we cannot, we cannot attain for ourselves. Resurrection life. That is what we are promised. That is what we are given. Um, that's the kind of God we're working with. Now, Jehoram, he meets that, that God of grace. He gets all of these blessings. And what comes from it? This very disheartening ending in light of God's full-hearted grace. Verse 20. The next morning, about the time of this offer, to offer the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. When all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to put on armor from the youngest to the oldest were called out and were drawn up to the border. When they rose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. And they said, this is blood. The kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. Now then, Moab to the spoil. All right, so it, it didn't rain. Where did all this water come from? Where did all this liquid come from? And it's red, reflecting the morning sun. They think it, it must be blood. They've, they've, they have fought against themselves, destroyed themselves. Let's go get them. But when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites till they fled before them. And they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. And they overthrew the cities and on every good piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered. 
They stopped every spring of water and felled all the good trees till only its stones were left in Kir Harseth and the slingers surrounded and attacked it. All right. They got everything they wanted. God pulls through. He gives them the water. All right, we're taken care of. Then he uses that water to destroy Moab in the weirdest way possible. How, how, do, you, how do you just feed an army with red water? But that's how God does it. And that's like, okay, he, he gets all the credit there. Um, and they have destroyed everything. They have come to the very last city, Kir Haraseth. And then we see this weird, really weird turn. Verse 26. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 uh, swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him as a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. All right, this is weird. Um, what appears to have happened, right, the king of Moab, he's trying to escape, but he can't. And in his last-ditch effort, he sacrifices his son as a burnt offering, seemingly to the god of Moab, Chemosh. And as a result, the wrath of this god or son, the wrath, wrath for some reason comes upon Israel, and everyone goes home. What? All right, there are a lot of options here. And we're going to walk through these. So, uh... First, just so we're clear, God hates child sacrifice. All right, he, he condemns it. He forbids it. He says not to do it. And his wrath is against that practice. Um, so, so did Elijah, did Elijah lie? Did God trick them into this final battle and they lost? Why does, why does great wrath come against Israel at this point? Why doesn't great wrath come against the Moabites for doing this sacrifice? All right, I'm going to give you four options that are all terrible. All right, it could be that the Moabites were simply inspired to fight harder and wrath came against Israel. Uh... Great wrath coming against Israel. All right, that's usually a divine term. That's a God thing. All right, so, well, maybe it could be that the king of Moab sacrificed to Chemosh, and Chemosh started beating down on him. All right, that is super problematic. All of kings is saying, like, these are idols. They're not real. These gods aren't strong. That doesn't fit. All right, it could be that God got angry with them for having led the king of Moab into this terrible situation. And so he was so desperate that he sacrificed his son. God told them to go. That doesn't make any sense. All right, it could be that we play with the words and make it that, uh, that the indignation rose up against the Israelites upon themselves and they're so disgusted with everything that happened that they felt wrath against themselves and they left. 
All right, that is some wordplay. Uh, and that's just, no, don't do that. Um, all right, I, I've been very tired of reading these four options again and again in different commentary, and each one choosing, like, this one, uh, I choose that one, like, oh, I choose this one. Uh, there's a fifth option. Uh, bear with me. Fifth option that actually explains why would Israel be responsible for this? All right, so verse 26. When the king of Moab saw the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 horsemen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. All right. I want to say, at that point, the battle is over. That is the defeat of the king of the Moabites. He tried to do one last-ditch effort, and he failed. Battle over. All right. So what is verse 27? Verse 27 is the aftermath. What happens in Scripture consistently when someone who has rebelled against the, the suzerain, the vassal, when they, they have been rebelling and then all of a sudden they get caught they have to make up for it. They owe, they owe a cost to their Lord, an act of repentance, an act of tribute, an act of contrition. And usually it's usually, a, and sometimes it's a sacrifice to that other nation's God because, you know, that God is the victor. We're going to worship him. He's better. All right. So what does that mean? That means that Jehoram, after all is said and done, he decided that the cost to the king of Moab for his rebellion would be the sacrifice of his son. And not just that his son would die, but that he had to sacrifice to the Lord his son as a burnt offering, and that that alone, that alone would be enough justice for this rebellion. All right. Do you get why the, the wrath of the Lord would come upon Israel at that point? All right. This is terrible. And Jehoram, what did he start off with? He started off with this half-hearted worship of the Lord, but he does it through evil means, through things that should never be done, the making of idols. And the hope would, and, and what does he do? He's, he's exactly the same at the end. At the end, what does he do? Hey, how, we can worship the Lord best by your child's sacrifice. And you can, you can give that to the Lord and he'll be pleased with it. All right, he hasn't changed. He is still the half-hearted idiot that he was before. What should he have seen? In this encounter with God, he should have seen a God of grace, a God of vicarious substitutes, and of people standing before and of grace and of mercy and of abundant blessing in the face of of deserved judgment 
and punishment and wrath. But even though he gets all of those blessings and he is basking in all of the blessings that the Lord has given him for his half-hearted faith, he enacts an evil and the, the greatest, most costly, most terrible price upon this king's rebellion. Grace for him, but not for you. All right. That is Jehoram. We have a God. We have a God who, before, and instead of requiring our sacrifice, he, he, he watches his own son be sacrificed on the cross for our sins. Which is not a new concept. This has been, he's been doing this forever. He gave to Abraham a ram caught in the thicket so that he would not have to give his son. As the firstborn sons stand condemned, what does God provide? The Passover lamb. And as we all stand condemned for our sins, what does he give us? He gives us this same Davidic king, the messianic king, Jesus Christ on the cross. That is our God. That is the God that Jehoram should have showed to the Moabites. That is the God that he should have been worshiping and sacrificing to. He did not. All right. Let us not be so cold-hearted. The hope would be that we go from half-hearted and seeing the full-hearted grace and love and mercy of our God we would then worship God with equally full hearts that we'd be transformed and that we would long to pour out grace and mercy and love to others. Even our enemies, even those who don't deserve it, even those who caused the problem in the first place. Because we long to love this God who has loved us first, who has loved us in spite of our half-heartedness and our sin, who has loved us in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our Father, you are so full of grace and love towards us. We do not have in ourselves the faith and the righteousness and the hearts that we need to come before you. So we thank you for Christ. Lord, we thank you that he had everything that we need, that he had all, of, all righteousness, all faithfulness, all goodness. And Lord, we are astounded that he would sacrifice himself for us. Father, we ask that you might use the, the work of Jesus to convince us uh, to draw us out of, to compel us into full-hearted worship of you. Lord, would you convict us of the ways that we are uh, going our own way, creating our own plans, 
blaming you or, Lord, assuming the worst about you. Father, would we truly trust you? Would we run to your word to see your promises? Would we know the grace that is found in Jesus Christ? And would you help us to show that same grace and love and forgiveness to others? We pray in Christ's name.